From the city of Beaky Blinders, Birmingham, England, I would like to introduce you to Paddy Dandar. As the world becomes more automated and the robots take over, it's imperative that we build the right human skills for the future. So pull up a chair, grab a smoser or two, and make yourself very uncomfortable. Hey folks, thank you for joining us for another episode of the Superpower School podcast. I'm your host, Paddy Dander, and on today's show, we have an agile expert, somebody who is an expert in transformation. And I know a lot of listeners are working in this space, trying to figure out how do you do successful transformation? So I thought I'd bring an expert on the show who can uh, give us a few hints and tips. She is a business transformation consultant, a author, a speaker. She's the author of a book called Cultivating Transformations, A Leader's Guide to Connecting the Soulful and the Practical. And without further ado, I'd love to welcome Jardina London to the show. Hey, Jardina. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Patty. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, you are welcome. And only you and I know how many takes that took for me to get the title of your book right. So that's I'm not our... telling. I won't tell. <laughs> that's our secret. Okay, so Jardina, I love your surname. I've mentioned that right at the start. So I know that is your surname. It's not just the location. And you're calling me from where are you based? I'm in New Jersey, the New York metro area. Got it. And so Jardina, in terms of the superpower you'd like to bring to this particular episode, could you tell us more? Sure, yeah. I love the idea of transforming organizations, mostly because I believe that we spend a lot of time at work. So if our workplaces are more soulful and more fulfilling, that changes society. So my superpower and what I think I bring to that's different is helping organizations see new possibilities. Because until you can see a new possibility, you really can't transform. And I think the big way to do that is what you talked about with the book title is connecting the soulful and the practical. So I say thriving people, thriving financials. It's not just to be soulful and happy. We hear a lot about happiness and at work, but it's not just about happiness. It's all emotions, right? Happiness is just one. We bring soulfulness to work that also gets financial results. So it's both things that need to be linked together. It's not that you need to have them both running in parallel. It's that they need to be connected. And that's why I always say connecting the soulful and the practical. I love that word soulful. And in my mind, I have images of jazz music playing. And there's that sort of musical side. When you say soulful, could you explain a little bit more about what that means for you? Yeah, I get that question a lot. And people want to know if I mean religious. I mean, if religious is soulful for you, great. But I find it maybe more better explanation if I give you think about the opposite. So think about what it's like to be at work when it's soul crushing or when it's soul sucking, right? That is that if you think about like, what's the opposite of soul crushing? It's that you can bring your full, it's not just your full self, but all of your emotion and all of your inner being to work, right? It's more than just people say like, bring your whole self. It's more than just your whole self. It's that ethos that's inside of you that you're bringing. For many years, I kind of treated my job as a nine till five, and I used to just look forward to going back home and doing all the things I wanted to do outside of work. But I think what you're saying is, if you really enjoy what you do at work and you're really engaged in the things you do, then you'll have that soulful feeling, I think. Yeah. 
And think about the math there. Like I, I've given, I mean, I'm not the first person to say this, but I think about the math. Like if it's an eight hour day and you sleep for eight hours and then so you got eight hours left and you have to still shower and commute and eat, like there's not a whole lot of time left. You're spending most of your time at work. So why wouldn't you enjoy it? That's a third of your life, at least, if not more. So, Sharina, brings me to my next question. How did you end up in this space? Oh, good question. So I started out as a techie. I went to school for computer science and math, and I did run a software company for a while, probably about 12 or 13 years, I ran a software company. And I just kept, after I graduated from university, I kept saying, wow, all those smart people are in these departments, in these technology departments, in these companies that can't seem to deliver. And they're kind of hated by most of the organization, right? I thought that's how I felt. My first job was at a telecom company. And I learned immediately that everyone hated our department. And I thought, why is that? And I, it became my life's mission to solve that. Why, why can't a whole lot of people, a whole lot of really smart people seem to get results? And as I started to unravel that and I learned about Agile and I learned about good meetings, and I learned about organization design, I realized the problem's not the technology. The problem is how we organize ourselves. And I don't, we're chipping away at it. We haven't, I don't know if we've fully solved it yet, for, certainly not fully implemented it, but there's got to be a better way for us to work together. Yeah, I was going to say, I actually started my career in telecoms as well. So it must be something about that industry where agile's become a really big thing. So for me, I think the types of projects that we were involved in, there was lots of complexity. Yeah. It was things, it wasn't just software. There was so much hardware involved as well, especially with networks and things like that. So a really interesting space to try Agile in. And so when you talk about transformations in the book, could you tell us who's this book aimed at? Who would find value from it, first of all? And then we'll talk in a bit more depth about the content. Sure. So I wrote the book for anybody who has either has transformation in their title or has transformation as part of their role or even change agent, pioneer, anybody who wants to really make a difference and change the shake up the status quo. I, I wrote the book because I do this a lot in my consulting work is I work with transformation leads, but also I was doing this job before it was, before it had a name. And as it started to have a name, and now a lot of people have this in their title, I thought, well, I was, do I've been doing that job for a long time and it's hard. And the reason it's hard is because your job is to challenge the status quo, which might be your boss and might be the people who pay you who don't want you to challenge the status quo. So it can be really a challenging job. And honestly, a lot of people get fired in this job because it's you're just in a you're just structurally in a difficult position. So one of my first talks I gave on the topic was how to lead a transformation without getting fired, because it's by nature you're being asked to do a thing that might get you fired. So I wrote the book as a companion guide for people in this very difficult position to have a companion, to have some solace. And I do have plans to create some community around it, too, because it's hard. It's a hard job. Yeah, I think over the last few months, I've been talking to a lot of different clients, and the common theme has always been the culture and the difficulties that they're finding 
outside of the team, that whole transformation as an organization is really challenging. So what are the big challenges for someone to be able to transform their organization? So one of the big questions I get a lot is, I think some of the challenges are be learning how to be diplomatic, right? So if you don't, if you're not, if you don't challenge the organization enough and shake up the status quo and disrupt, you fail because now you're just, you're really not making a change. But if you shake it up too much, you get fired. So it's how can we actually be a truth teller and be diplomatic and get that to a point where it's not offensive. And so, so diplomacy is a huge skill. Politics, nobody likes to say politics, but politics is a really important part of being a transformation lead. And I've had transformations lead, lead say to me, well, I love my job, but I just don't like the politics. Well, if you don't, and I tell them straight out, if you don't like politics, don't be a transformation lead. I'm sorry. Right. I'm not saying to be like a bad, unethical politician, but if you're not going to engage in politics, you're not going to be able to change, to make change. So really becoming very politically astute is really important in this job. I know no one likes that word, but it's not false. <laughs> so you really have to do think about that. And I think the other the other challenge that I talk about a lot is pain. So if you're not, if you're trying to come in and transform an organization on top of pain without addressing the pain that's there, that's festering, you can't. So that's just putting a Band-Aid over a big festering wound. So you need to heal that pain and face it head on before, you, before any change is possible. Could you give us an example of that? So where sure. there is pain and people are just glossing over the actual root cause? Sure. I'll tell you the one that I see almost every day, and it will probably resonate with a lot of folks. A lot of times people will say, like, we want to be agile, help us be agile. And they're all working over capacity and they don't have any time to even meet with me. So I'm like, well, how are you going to be agile if you're working over capacity and no one can say no? So instead of making you agile or having you do scrum or whatever they want, I say, let's address your capacity issue first. Let's do the prioritization. Let's manage your whip. Let's learn how to work within our capacity and know our capacity because they don't even know their capacity, right? That's why they're working over capacity. So by getting their capacity under control, that's painful. They're frustrated. They're tired. Their stuff's not getting done. So once we get the capacity under control, which is a little agile, right? That's part of the agile. Get them a Kanban board, get some prioritization going, but real simple. Then maybe now they have the bandwidth to think about the next stage of the transformation. But that's super painful when you're working over capacity and there's no way you can layer a new process that you want them to learn when they have no time. I've had that example where I've been training a team and they've been really engaged and they've then said, but Paddy, we are spread across 10 different projects. How can I focus on one backlog? Which is what we're telling them when we're training people is, Focus. Focus is your biggest friend when it comes to Agile. If you have that focus and you're allowed to move away from all of those distractions, you've got half a chance of being successful. And they're like, but our leaders put us on 10 different projects. How on earth can we do all of this stuff? And you're absolutely right. I think there are so many other factors around the team that are destroying agility without even knowing it. Right. Right. And if you don't, if you don't address that pain... I mean, it's really just lipstick on a pig, right? <laughs> there was another situation where I had I was working with this organization who kept trying to 
get products out the door. But finance, in terms of like revenue and pricing, they their backlog was so big that they cannot get to these products, like to price the products and get them out the door to the customer. So they were all being held up at finance. Well, what's the point of us continuing to create new products and just have them piling up in front of finance, right? That's the bottleneck. But why why are we doing that? And they would all laugh, oh, that's just how it always was. And that's how it's going to be. And I was like, wait, stop. <laughs> stop and put instead of putting your energy into new products put it into solving this problem that we think is unsolvable which and by the way we did solve it but just because we redirected our energy from accepting it and working on other stuff because it's just like too bad to actually facing the pain and figuring and dealing with something that was painful and no one wanted to think about which was finance if we look at the book how have you gone about structuring the book and it'd be great to understand your thought process on that Sure. So I structured the book. It's stolen from a lot of different things. Integral theory might be one of the things that this might seem familiar to you, but I structured it into three sections. The me. So how do I as a leader affect the transformation that's happening? We, which is how do we bring people together? And then the system, which is that under those underlying mechanisms that drive everything that's happened. A lot of people jump to the system and say, we're going to change the system. We're going to put processes in place. But until you deal with the we and the me, changing the system is, again, like we said, you're building on top of pain. Yeah. And so what level of research has gone into the book? Because I'm sure you've done lots of homework and brought in lots of experiences. It'd be great to know some of the research that you've had to do um, for the book. Yeah, it's over time. I do a lot of reading. So I did pull in a lot of sources. A lot of it is from other places. And then some of it is mine. So me section, a lot of that I pulled from Brene Brown. So I had been a certified Dare to Lead instructor for a long time. So a lot of the Brene Brown work on self-awareness, emotional literacy, which I've added, not just from Brene Brown, but the, the armor, the fact that your armor and your ego gets in the way, that a lot of that is the Brene Brown work. And then I talk about the how you show up matters. Your impact changes the outcome of the transformation you're working through. And I don't think that everybody realizes that not just the my impact in terms of I did a good job, but how you show up changes. It's the butterfly effect, right? If you come into a meeting, I always give this example. If you come into a meeting and you say you're going to observe and you don't say a word, you impacted that meeting without saying a word. Just by being there, your energy, your facial expressions, the fact that you didn't say anything is as impactful as saying something. So being super aware of how you're impacting the world around you is key for any leader, but especially a transformational leader. And if we were to focus on those three lenses, is that what you would refer to them as? Yep. Yeah. Which one do you feel is the most important or is there no one that is? It's hard to say most important, but I don't think you can do anything without starting with the me. Right. Ultimately, I can't pick between my three children here, <laughs> but listen, it all has to start with you or else it's, you're not going to be able to do the work you want to do. Bringing people together and mobilizing people is how you get stuff done. But ultimately, building the system is what sustains. Right. Yeah. So I, the most important is the system, but you can't jump to the third step. Yeah, absolutely. It's almost like you've got to have the right mindset yourself first before you start to impact the wider world around you. I get mm -hmm. that. And so 
starting with the me. And imagine if I am one of these transformational leaders and I've got this really hard challenge to help our organization move from here to here. Yeah. What might be some of the things that I need to reflect on immediately about myself? Well, let's see. We have to dig into this a little bit. The I think the first and most important thing is what your goals and approach are for doing this. A lot of times people will ask, like, how do I get buy-in? Are you, And I ask people, too, what are you doing this to get a promotion? Or is it a transformation work to me is is a calling. So when I hear that people are doing this transformation job because they think it's going to get them a promotion, I hope it does. Right. Of course, I hope that for everybody. But if that's your reason, you're probably going to fail because you need to make some decisions that might not be optimal for your career, like the truth telling that we talked about. That might not always be optimal, but it might be the right thing. So I think you need to really ask yourself, why am I doing this and what do I care about? Right. And and I talked about the getting buy in, too. You shouldn't be asking for buy in. So it's really like, can I drop my ego to get this transformation underway. There's that whole notion of servant leadership within Agile. And then when you have individuals that are very egotistical, the two don't marry up. For those folks, there's a lot of work to do before they start to do some of the wider work that you mentioned. So I can absolutely see that. And would you say for those folks, there's any effective approaches that you've seen in the past work So could it be that they need lots of coaching or they might need to spend loads of time with their teams? Like what kind of things have you seen work really well to help those types of leaders that have maybe had that more traditional mindset? So I'll tell you the best thing. And of course, everyone has to be you have to be open to it for in order for it to work. But and my goal in life, by the way, not my goal in life, my goal in life is to transform organizations. But for me personally, is to know my blind spots. So it's different for everybody. There's different ways to know your blind spots. So it could be coaching. It could be soliciting feedback from your team, your peers, asking for feedback. There is a really cool tool called the Johari window, which I will put in the show notes. It's free online. But what you do is you put what you think about yourself and then you send it out to a bunch of people you trust to say the characteristics, how they see you. And it shows you where your blind spots are, like where people appreciate you that you don't realize you have strengths and where you have weaknesses that you're completely unaware of. So it's strengths and weakness, but you don't always see yourself the way the rest of the world sees you. And it's important for you to know how people, how you're showing up and how people see you. So the Johari window is a great tool for that, but you can just ask people. That's another way. Yeah. And that's a really interesting way of seeking feedback, isn't it? When you say to someone, hey, give me some feedback. And the reaction you often get is, do I be totally honest here or do I almost gloss over some of the negative aspects? But you can make it easy for them. Hey, what could I have done? It's like one thing I could have done differently there hmm. or something so that they're not on the spot so badly. But yeah, I think knowing your blind spots and constantly seeking your blind spots is the key to, well, life, but leadership for sure. Got it. They will sneak up behind you if you don't (laughs) know what they are. And so for helping the we as a collective, what are some of the challenges you see on that front? Yeah. So we talked about healing the pain already. 
I think the other pieces in terms of the we is the diplomacy that we talked about, the politics, the being able to know how to build rapport is important. So that's all of your things, your listening skills, right? And just how to, and being able to connect better with people. Now, once you've worked on the me and you've like lowered some of your armor, you've peeled back some of that armor that you have, it's easier to connect with people. But it's not just that I can connect with you. It's that I can connect you with other people. So facilitation skills are really important there, right? So how can I, like I, one of the things I coach some of my clients on, it's not having a meeting where everyone gives their status update to me. It's having a meeting where they talk to each other and I'm facilitating conversations between so that people can talk to each other, not all, I'm not, again, I'm not the ego, I'm not the center of attention, right? It's not all about me, but I can actually create a space where they can collaborate with each other. So that's the we. Facilitation skills, I'd say, are like probably your doorway there. And how important is it for somebody in that transformation lead role to be an expert in agile and all things around, I guess, organizational structures and that sort of subject matter? I think, especially when we get to the system, um, it's important, just like any being a leader in any field, it's important to know enough. I think understanding the design of organizations and the pros and cons of different patterns is important as a leader in this particular space, not every space. But I don't know that you need to be an expert in Agile. I think you need to be an expert in, and I'll put it in the show notes for you. I have a book about the eight key hallmarks. It's called, it's called What is Agile Really? But what it does is it lays out the eight key hallmarks, benefits, business benefits of Agile. I think you need to know that. I don't think you need to know the details of one mechanism or framework over another. I think you need to know fast feedback, right? Customer-centric, trust. Those are the kinds of things that you need to know. Continuous improvement. Those are important things to know as a leader, but the mechanisms to implement those, you don't need to know them in detail. Great point. Yeah, because I think often we put people into certain roles because of their expertise and actually that can be a hindrance in certain respects as well. Just because you've done some great agile projects in the past doesn't mean you're going to be great at transformation work because that's a completely different type of skill set. So it brings me on to the third lens and probably my favorite because I think it, it's the one that for me is the most visible as a trainer. When I'm working with teams, even when I've been coaching certain teams, I see some of the structures in organizations and some of the things that are going on within the organization being quite visible. So what would you say are some of the things to be aware of when you're organizing the organization? I think the main thing to be looking for is that fact that structure is profoundly impacting your outcomes. So I, in the past, in the beginning, it's getting better. But in the beginning with Agile, we would say like, well, we're not going to change any of your structures. Don't worry. We're not going to bother you. We're just going to be Agile and we'll work around it. But we found out that the structures really could change that outcome. So people who say, well, we don't need to have, you don't need to change the org structure around teams, but you do. Like maybe you don't to get started, but you do. So when you have all these different matrix organizations and people aren't set up in there, come on, it's a hindrance, right? It's an impediment. 
So I think that's the one thing is really thinking about where, and I don't think you have to go come in and say, we're changing the whole organization structure to be agile. I think you need to say, where is our organizational structure impeding us in becoming more adaptable? You can ask the question that way, again, looking for where the pain is instead of trying to impose a big change. I think the second thing, though, is we talked about sequence is important. So in his book, in the show notes, in his book, The Brave New Work, Aaron Dignan talks about the adjacent possible. So I think about that. I hear a lot of agilists say, well, they're not doing this and they're not doing that. It's not adjacent for them yet. So it's like a stepping stone, right? You're walking across a pond, across stepping pieces of stone, right? You can't jump to that fifth rock or I can't. It's too slippery. I need to walk you to the next adjacent possible and then the next and then the next. And you don't always know what's ahead until you get until you're standing on that third stone, right? So like we talked before about capacity, until you get your capacity under control, it's hard to see what's possible. So really thinking from a system perspective about operationalizing one thing at a time to get you there. And then I guess operationalizing, that's the third thing, right, is there's a lot, especially in the agile world, in the transformation world. Oh, in the transformation world, there's so much aspirational, inspirational language. We talk about here's and here's an example, experiment and learn. And it all sounds wonderful and everyone loves to talk about it, but then no one goes and does it. And the question when we get to the system is, how do we operationalize all of these very aspirational values? So we say experiment and learn. How are we doing that? How is that operationalized? So those are the things to think about when you get to the piece on on the system. What's really interesting is this word transformation, because I've sometimes refrained from using it because it suggests there's a start point and an end point, and then we're done, almost like a project that we're going to work on a transformation when in reality we're never done, I guess, as organizations have to constantly evolve. And so as a transformation lead, when is your work really done? So there's always a new level of maturity. So this is what I tell my clients. We're done with this phase of maturity because we got to the goals that we said. And if you want to get to another phase and you need help, I can then come in and help again. But the idea very few organizations are there, although I can give you some examples of very forward-thinking ones that are. The idea from a consultant perspective is that you've created an organization that is now a self-cleaning oven, right? You're adaptable. So once we get, once you finally get, and most of it right now is just like administrative cleaning up work workflow, that's not there. But building structures that are self-adaptable, then that's when you really have, you have actually transformed. So you'll continue to transform, but it's built in, right? So you don't have to do a transformation because you're continuously transforming, continuously adaptable. We are, as a society, not there yet, but there's a few organizations. So one of them is Birdsog, which there's been a lot of writing about, which is the visiting nurses in the Netherlands and spreading across Europe. So they are self-adaptive. If you look at holacracy, that's a self-adaptive model or sociocracy. So we don't have a lot of good examples of that yet, but that's you continue to transform, but you're done transforming into a self-transforming organization. Oh, the holacracy approach is really interesting. That was the approach that Zappos used, yes. I believe. Could you tell yes. us more about that for anyone that hasn't come across that approach to their organization? I can't claim to be an expert in holacracy, but what I mean, I've read the book and stuff, but what I love 
what I can say about it that I do know is it, it is like a self-cleaning oven. So it puts the org design in the hands of the people. So every time something's not working, the process is or the, it sparks you to ask, why is there tension here? And what do we need to change? Is there a role we need to change? Is something missing in our role definition or role accountability, they call it? Do we need to spin up a new team? So that comes from within, not from outside or not from the top. So and they talk about the, these cir- things are circles and not squares, which is the same to me. I mean, there is they talk about not having hierarchy. There is hierarchy, but the hierarchy is about span of control, right? Or I should say breadth of control, because some people look at things broad and shallow and some people are deep into the work. So it's not about who's has authority over who, whom, but it's more about who has what what work in their span of control. So I, that's why I like that model. But the best part about that is just that self-perpetuating. So many organizations that are put off by this word agile, and they'll say, we had an agile transformation done to us, and we're feeling the pain of that. And we don't like the word anymore. We don't want to use the word. And so if I come along and say, hey, everyone, let's do another agile transformation, they're probably going to shoot me. So. Going towards the future, where do you see Agile going and Agile transformation going? Do you think we need to drastically change our approach? Or do you think there's something else around the corner? I really angered a lot of Agile coaches one day when I said, our job is not to make this company Agile. Our job is to make this company better. And the Agile coaches got very angry at me and said, but we're Agile coaches. And they said, just to be clear, What you're saying is, if something better comes along tomorrow, we'll kick Agile to the curb. And I said, did you hear what you just said? (laughs) You just said, if something better comes along. Well, why wouldn't you do something better? Isn't that what Agile is? (laughs) So my answer to your question is, it's an evolution. There's nothing wrong with a lot of the fads that we've had, people call management fads, have become part of our DNA. And some of them haven't. Some of them have the systems bat them out. But you know, Agile has a bad name, like you said, because humans have an ability to screw up and misuse things. And Agile has become, Scrum has become equivalent to Agile. So people think Agile means Scrum nowadays. If we go back to the roots, it means we're continuously improving. And if we're continuously improving, maybe it's Agile, maybe it's not, right? That's what the whole idea of continuous improvement is. So a lot of my clients now are using the terminology new ways of working instead of agile, and that's encompassing of whatever new ways are better. (laughs) And so I kind of like that, although it's not very catchy. So I do think that agile, people are going to use different terminology, but I think always looking, and what was it? It was, it said it right at the beginning of the agile manifesto, we are looking for new and better ways to, it was develop software, but now we're looking for new and better ways to work. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Oh, well put. I had a boss who used to run the Agile services team. And so I was part of this center of excellence for Agile in a big global bank. And even she used to love the word better. So she used to say, I wish I could name us as the better team. But she said, like you mentioned, it's not a very catchy name. And so we couldn't really go with that. But absolutely, totally agree with that. I've had clients actually say, please don't use the word. Like we want to do that training, but please don't use it. 
And so then you're struggling for words and it's how do I communicate some of this stuff? But it's because of these bad experiences that they've had. And it's such a shame because there's so much goodness in there. And if people are now avoiding the term because it's got negative connotations for them, that is a real shame, I think. To finish up, Jardina, I'd love to hear some of your resources. I know you've mentioned a whole bunch of them, so maybe you could reiterate a few of those. And also, your fantastic book. Just remind us what it's called and where can we get it from? Sure. So just a couple of the resources I mentioned. I have some things on my website, which I will put two websites. One is jardinalondon.com, which is my sort of personal website of what I do. And then I have my business site, Rosetta Agile. So there's lots of blog posts and ebooks and you can hear podcasts and I'll put this on there. So lots of resources on there free. And I mentioned a few different things. I think A Brave New Work by Aaron Dignan is a great book that talks about changing new operating models. He also, with Rodney Evans, has a podcast called Brave New Work, which is my favorite podcast because it really is all about how we work. Not necessarily agile specifically, but just how we work, how we design organizations. So love that. Highly recommend it. Um, And then my book is Cultivating Transformations, A Leader's Guide to Connecting the Soulful and the Practical, which is now in Spanish also and on Audible. So you can hear my voice for six hours if you want. And I do have, I will also mention, let's see, in a few weeks, we will be releasing the new copy of the Business Agility Institute. They have, they publish a journal called Emergence, and I am the guest editor, and it will be all about organizational agility. So be sure to check that out. Oh, fantastic. I, yeah, I absolutely love the work coming out of the Business Agility Institute. There's some really great articles and some of the publications as well. So a great yeah. job that those folks are doing. So thank you to them as well and yourself. Yes, wonderful uh, organization. And so folks should definitely check out the Business Agility Institute's website. Fantastic. So Jolina, I want to thank you for sharing your thoughts and some of your great insights on agile transformation for me it's been really enjoyable and i hope we can continue the conversation between us going forward we will put all the links in the show notes as well hopefully we'll share those with everybody as well but i give you the final word what's one bit of advice you would give people who are struggling who are going through an agile transformation and just want to see a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. the one piece of advice that i would give that we didn't talk about i'll give you one one little teaser here is love your boss. So that is, if you have a boss that is making it difficult for you to do your transformation job, find a way to love your boss or client if you're a consultant. But that's always my advice. So that's about positive intent and seeing what's important to them and finding ways to, in your heart, to love them. And in a very HR appropriate way, that's really your key to success in this role. Got it. Oh, I think that's a whole episode in its own right just there. You've lifted mm-hmm. the lid on something. But maybe we'll get you back and you can tell I us more. I love it. Yeah. I loved being here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. There you have it, folks. It's the end of another insightful episode. And as always, thank you so much for sticking around to listen to this episode and for helping support me and encouraging me to create more content for you guys. If you'd like to get in touch with me directly, you'll find my email address in the show notes or equally head over to the website 
and click on the contact link and I promise I will respond to every single message I receive. I'm always looking for your feedback so if you'd like me to change things up or improve things I would love your opinions. If there are topics that you would like us to do future episodes on or there are other great speakers that you are aware of then please do mention them and uh, we'll see if we can make it happen. Thank you once again.